Well, church, let's pray together as we come to a sticky passage uh, in the book of Romans. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we truly thank you because your word is an expression of your love and your commitment to us. And so today we may find it hard to see how this could be true. Uh, but we ask, dear Lord, by your spirit, you would open up our hearts and our minds to see this for what it is. Uh, help us, Lord, to draw near to you by faith. Um, give us faith so we may, we may see and we may rejoice. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our series on the book of Romans. And as mentioned before, we're coming to a bit of a, a spicy or a contentious portion of the Bible today. Um, and the opening words of our passage says it all. A significant part of this sermon is going to be about sex. And more specifically, about the practice of same-sex sexual activity. Now, at the outset, I just want to say a few things, and I want to acknowledge uh, a few things. Uh, firstly, uh, the Bible does have what you could say are very strong views or strong teachings about sex. Not just same-sex relationships and practices, but sex in general. And in a moment, we're going to talk about why the Bible is so concerned about sex, but let's just as an acknowledgement, highlight that as a reality. The Bible is not ignorant or indifferent to the topic. What's more, what the Bible teaches and what Christians believe about the topic is extremely countercultural. Let's just acknowledge that as acknowledgement number one. Let's not be surprised. Second of all, some Christians and non-Christians have been hurt by the Bible's teaching on sex. They have felt marginalized, sidelined, and threatened. Uh, and if you've been hurt today by what has been said, um, I, I don't want you to walk away feeling that. I, I don't want you to feel like you've been walked away Bible-bashed by what you feel like you can't change. The Bible is not meant to be weaponized for political, emotional, or relational purposes. If you've been hurt by people, myself included, if you've been hurt by people, I want to sincerely apologize for that. I cannot speak for everyone, but my intention is never to use the Bible to control your behavior. And so I just want to acknowledge that this here is not a theoretical topic. It is deeply personal and emotional. That's acknowledgement number two. Thirdly, I want you to know that the Bible's teaching on sex and sexuality and on any topic for that matter is never intended to hurt, but to heal. It is never intended to hurt, but to heal. And again, you may find that really hard to believe, and I'm not expecting you to be 100% on board with this right away. And in fact, you don't have to fully believe everything that's here in order to come to Grace Point. Everyone is welcome, and we will never marginalize or sideline you as long as you are open to discovering the life that is found in Jesus. But we hope you understand that we cannot change our view on the topic. Chiefly because we believe this is God's word, which has authority. We have no right to change what it says. But significantly, we also believe that this authoritative word is good for us. We are not forced into submission. We believe that God loves us, cares for us, wants us to flourish. And again, you may find it really hard to believe, either because you've been hurt in the past or you read this and it just seems so intolerant and outdated and so not connected with reality. But as we explore our passage today, 
I hope you can realize two things. Number one, the main issue our passage is dealing with today is not same-sex relationships, is not homosexuality, is not even sex in general. The main issue of Romans 1, 24 to 32 is sin. That's the heart. Indeed, that's what the entire Bible is about. God cares about our behaviors and beliefs, both big and small. So let's not make that mistake of thinking that God cares about some things and not others. He cares about them all. But as we look at today's passage, I don't want us to be tunnel vision and miss the heart of the issue. We are dealing with sin. And so number two, and this is the message I love for us to walk away knowing deep within our hearts. Here's the reality. God loves us too much to let us sink in our sin. God loves us too much to let us sink in our sin. Because here's the thing, sin consistently overpromises and underdelivers. Sin is like living against God's way is like trying to drink seawater, expecting that it will quench our thirst. It makes us think that we are drinking, but it's actually dehydrating us from the inside. That's why when you're in the ocean, when you drink seawater, you spit it out, right? You don't go, mm, yeah, more. You don't, you don't never do that. It'd be unwise to do that. And so this is why conceptually, I think it's helpful for us to see that God speaks clearly in his word, not to rob us of joy, but to ramp up our joy. It is not to rob us of joy, but to ramp up our joy. He loves us too much to let us sink in our sin, to, to further go down the path of destruction and ruin. And the good news is, because this is not fundamentally a sex issue, but a sin issue, church, there is hope for change. There is hope for restoration. There is hope for new beginnings through Jesus Christ. Where you are at right now is not where you have to stay. But here's a question, right? Why are we drawn to sin? Many of you will be able to testify that you know the destructive natures of sin. Up here, cognitively, you know it. But there is an allure and attraction to sin. What's behind it? Well, this is where I think our passage is really helpful. Because as I mentioned before, this portion of Romans 1 is focused on the issue of homosexuality, right? Verses 24 to 27 make that super clear. It speaks of, look at your passages with me. It speaks of the degrading of bodies. It speaks of exchanging natural sexual relations between male and female to unnatural ones. And the unnatural ones are speaking of sexual relations between people of the same gender, it uses the categories of lust and shame to describe these things. And, and here's the reality. You will have to do quite a bit of mental acrobatics to deny what the Bible is saying. The Bible is making it extremely clear. All of this is considered sexual immorality according to the Bible. These are against God's designs and purposes and insisting on these practices and behaviors, as our passage says, will lead to destruction. But as you come to point one with me, I wonder if you realize that people are sexually immoral for different reasons. In other words, people engage in sexual activity outside of God's plans and purposes. So not just same-sex activity anymore, just sex in general. They engage in sexual activity outside of God's purposes for a whole range of reasons. 
They're all searching for different things. I mean, before we even look at our text, we know this conceptually to be true, right? Two people can steal bread for two different reasons. One can do it because they are hungry, and another can do it because they are greedy. Same behavior, but radically different motivations and intentions. And this is part of the genius of Romans 1, 24 to 32. Because not only does it touch on the topic of sex, which continues to be contentious throughout culture and time, it uses sex as a very clear case study and illustration for human desire. As mentioned before, sex is not the main issue. Sin is, and the Bible's teaching on sex shows us that the human heart is inclined to at least three things. The first is love and intimacy. Love and intimacy, that's probably the most obvious one, right? People turn to sex for love and intimacy. Maybe you've heard the saying before, right? Women give sex to get love, and men give love to get sex. Now, of course, this is an extremely simplistic saying. It doesn't cover every case and scenario, but we know with every saying, especially sayings that stick, we know that there's an element of truth shrouded in there, right? We live in a culture where sex has become synonymous with love. We live in a world where if you love someone, then the most natural and the default thing is to have sex with them. That's just the air we breathe today. And so if someone turns you down for sex, the most immediate question you're asking yourself is, does that mean that you don't love me? Friends, I hope you see this this is why Christian sexual ethics is so hard to recognize and maintain today because it has somehow been tethered to a basic and primal instinct to love and to be loved. So today, to say that the Bible has strong teachings about sex is like saying the Bible has strong teachings about love. And how could Christianity be all about love, be so against sex? Do you see the confusion? And church, sex feels connected to love because it's meant to. That's how God created it to be. Lean in very closely. Sex is a gift from God. It is a gift from God for the enjoyment between husband and a wife who are in an exclusive and lifelong union. And it is for the enjoyment for intimacy, unity, and procreation. So there is absolutely no doubt that physically and chemically sexual activity simulates what feels like love. It's meant to. For truly, it is meant to bind and glue people together in a powerful way. Uh, That's why it's interesting, right? The whole casual sex movement is trying to disconnect sex and love. They're saying you can have sex without any of the emotional connection. Sex can be consensually casual. But here's the thing. We know it doesn't work. All your Netflix TV shows and movies show you that, right? It doesn't work. You can't separate it. Maybe even your own experiences have shown that. No matter how much you suppress it, you cannot shake the feeling that sex has a powerful connective ability to bind people together. It's meant to be that way, but it's also like fire. Used properly and it can cook food, it can provide warmth on a cold day, it could even kill germs, but used improperly, it can hurt you. It can ruin your house. It can start a bushfire that costs lives. 
but, but don't you see, that's why people turn to sex for a sense of love and intimacy. There's a charm to that. We, can we just understand that for just a moment? Just recognize why that is the case? And we will do whatever it takes to get that. People also turn to sex for a sense of safety and security. It gives that sense emotionally, can't it? <clears throat> The act of sex can also feel like a bit of a contract. Since I've had sex with you, you are somehow committed to me. It's not always explicitly expressed that way. It's often implicit, right? But people say, or they ask, hey, are you two in a serious relationship? And if the answer is, yeah, we've had sex, then people go, oh, wow, that's very serious. But then imagine another scenario. You're thinking about breaking up. And then someone asks, oh, have you two had sex? And they say no. And people will say, oh, yeah, that's fine. It's not even that serious yet. Nothing has really happened. Sex has become a symbol of safety and security. It makes us feel like the other person is ours. And can I say, and I want to say extremely sensitively, this is probably why non-consensual sex or rape feels like one of the most wicked and vile things that a person can do to another. You see, sex is connected with safety and security. It is a physically and emotionally vulnerable experience to, to have someone forced that upon you against your wishes is incredibly traumatizing. Because an act that is meant to make you safe and secure has made you feel the opposite. Violated, used, and discard. You can't shake it. No one ever says to a rape victim, just get over it. You can't. Because it feels like a part of themselves has been deeply violated, robbed. It's hard to restore. That sense of safety and security is stripped from them. Have you ever had your house broken into? You know what it's like, right? If you had your house broken into, there's this looming feeling that you don't feel safe in your own home anymore. People who have been violated or raped say the same thing, except they don't feel safe in their own skin. It's damaging not just physically, but also psychologically. Dear brother or sister, if you've ever been raped and you need to speak to someone about it, then we as a church are here for you. We're here to listen. We're here to walk with you. We recognize your pain. We're not here to pin any blame. We want to journey with you and make sure that you are not dealing with this alone because we know how devastating it is. Uh, you can start by talking to me after the service or talking to someone here you trust because I want you to know that there is healing because there is hope. But all that shows us, right, this transgresses our sense of safety and security. I hope you're beginning to see why sex is not just a casual thing, but deeply symbolic and perhaps even sacred. We also turn to sex for approval and acceptance. This is very interesting, right? Uh, they've done studies on husbands who commit adultery. And many people's assumption is that men do this because they want pleasure that they have some, some sort of high sex drive that their wives cannot provide, and so they turn somewhere else. Now, what's shocking to the researchers is that men weren't committing sexual adultery chiefly for pleasure. They were doing it for approval and acceptance. 
the adulterous affair or the sex was just a symptom. You see, these men reported that they had affairs because of low self-esteem and low self-worth. But the sexual relationship, often with a younger female counterpart, made them feel approved and acceptance. Sex was not the problem. It was the symptom of something deeper. But of course, not just men, is it? For anyone at all, the act of someone wanting to be sexually intimate with you can feel like the highest praise. To feel like, yes, I'm beautiful. Yes, I'm smart. Yes, I'm wanted. And when no one wants to have sex with you, you need to ask the question, or people force you to ask the question, well, is there something wrong with me? Uh, What's more, the vulnerability of sex makes it feel like the ultimate form of acceptance and approval. You know, in sex, you're not just physically undressed, but emotionally and psychologically as well. And to have someone accept that is powerful. Church, I hope we can understand the charm of sex. It can make us feel loved, intimate, safe, secure, approved, and accepted. That's why so many people are against biblical sexual ethics. Because to be against their sex lives is to say, we don't care if you feel loved, intimate, safe, secure, approved, or accepted. This is why people indulge in sexual activity. Can I just make three observations from this? Firstly, understood this way, I hope you realize that people are actually using sex rather than enjoying sex. There is a distinction between the two, using and enjoying. There are many people in this room who use coffee. On the way in this morning, you thought Elliot is preaching, I'm going to need it. And you drink it to stay awake. You don't care what it tastes like. If it does the job of keeping you awake, then great. But then there are those who enjoy coffee. They they, they like the effect it has on them, but they care very deeply about the entire experience. Where do the beans come from? How is it roasted? When is it roasted? How is it made? How is it drunk? Let me ask you a question. Between those who use and enjoy, which group do you think truly values coffee? A worldly understanding of sex causes us to see sex as a means towards an end. It is a transaction to get what we really want, and that's love, intimacy, safety, security, acceptance, and approval. This means, listen very closely, the worldly understanding of sex doesn't value sex. It's obsessed with sexual activity, but it has devalued sex as a means towards an end. As a result, over time, engaging in sex in this way can cause sex to lose its appeal. It grows cold, meaningless, and empty. Ironically, obsession with sex can cause us to stop enjoying sex. It's a tragedy. But that's what happens when you use sex rather than enjoy it. Secondly, understood this way, people are actually using people instead of loving people. Do you see that? 
Like my first observation, what happens is that the person that I'm having sex with is no longer someone whom I love. They are someone that I'm trying to use to get what I really want. The entire account becomes transactional and commercial and dehumanizing. It is a completely subhuman way to live. That's why some people feel used after sex, even consensual sex, right? Because in the act, one person is trying to love the other when the other person is trying to get something out of it. And you are only worthy of sex as long as you give me what I want. Isn't that just a cruel and nasty way to treat another person? To objectify and commercialize them in this way? That's why, if you look at verse 24, the passage speaks of degrading of their bodies with one another. The word degrade means to deprive someone of honor and respect. To deprive someone of honor and respect. It is to treasure someone for what they can give us rather than who they are. And so thirdly, third observation, these things are not specific to sex. It is common to sin. Church, listen very closely. Love, intimacy, safety, security, approval, and acceptance are all things that we look for, whether in sex or in anything else. These are the charms that grip our hearts. We don't just turn to sex for these things. We turn to sin in general, and they have multiple expressions. And you know what's the real tragedy? We give ourselves to these things or to these people, but they never give back. That's the catastrophe. Come to point two, because I want us to realize that sin is extremely destructive. Now, I mentioned before, right, that this passage is not just about sex, but it's about sin. And to to make this, to prove this point further, I want you to scan your eyes in your Bible across verses 28 to 32. Because these verses highlight over 20 other different kinds of sins. Now, to be sure, verses 24 to 27 zooms in on sexual immorality. But the rest of the passage shows that that is one of over 20 different sins. But before we explore the catastrophe of sin, I'd like to point your attention to that little graphic that's in your outlines. It's a bit clearer than last week's one, so that's really good, right? But it's a chiasm. And the Bible often uses chiasms to illustrate the main message or the main concern of the passage. It's a very clever literary tool. You know, today in our essays, we want to emphasize something. We use the bold or the underline or the italics function, right? But Microsoft Word wasn't available back then. And so they use a range of other literary devices like repetition, right? Those of you, high school English, right? You're, you're, oh my goodness, high school English is coming back to me, right? You remember, repetition means emphasis, right? But another tool is a chiasm or what you could call a literary sandwich. And we know sandwiches, right? The best part of the sandwich is the middle, where your truffle beef patty, where your southern fried chicken, where your falafels at. Like, that's why we really eat the sandwich, right? It's the focus. And as you read verses 28 to 32, you will notice that at the very center of these sins or the consequence of these sins is God-hating. That's the focus, and that's powerful, isn't it? Because Romans 1 is showing us the theological reality that the root of sin is actually hating God. Rebelling against Him, turning our backs against Him, 
not wanting to have anything to do with him, which is why the heart of Christian forgiveness is not to change our behaviors. It's not even to just stop sinning. It is first and foremost to be reconciled to God. And I want you to park that in the back of your mind for just a moment. Because I want to talk about the catastrophe of sin that we see in our passage. You see, again, this entire section speaks of God's punishment. Last week, we talked about God's wrath being revealed. And these verses here, they're spelling it out, right? They start from verse 29. And the passage is basically saying that insisting on living against God's way, insisting on sin, will inevitably lead to three things. The first is this. Instead of love and intimacy, we get deception and distance. Verse 29, right, speaks of deceit and malice. What happens when we use people rather than love people is that we begin to question everything. Do they really love me? Or do they love me because of what I can give? And so what happens? We start putting up a front. We pretend and we continue to be the person they want us to be in order to retain or preserve that sense of likability or lovability. And what happens over time is that this deception, both to ourselves and to them, creates a distance. This distance begins internally. We start losing ourselves. Who am I? Do I think, behave, or live the way I do because I really believe in it or because the other person wants me to do this way? It's because of what the other person wants. Uh, people who've broken up from long-term relationships know exactly what I'm talking about, right? A big part of that healing process is working out who you are again. That's why girls cut their hair, guys go to the gym, right? Trying to work out who we are. But the whole distance is also between you and your partner. Because in an attempt to be the perfect person for the other, we realize that the other person is not in love with who we are. They're in love with an image of who we are. A conjured up image. That's distance. But same with sin in general, right? Sin often causes us to deceive people around us because we're trying to hide our sins. This deception always leads to distance. People no longer know who we truly are or who we really are. We are present at church, but we are not known because we're using lies to keep people far away. What can sometimes happen then is instability and insecurity. Verse 31 speaks of no understanding, no faithfulness, no love, no mercy. You realize that pursuing relationships apart from God is like building your house on sinking sand. It will never stand. I mean, how can you feel secure if you feel used? How can you feel stable if you are only as good as your last accomplishment? And what's more, the problem with sin in general is that it never, ever delivers on its promise. And of course, rather than approval and acceptance, you get rejection and refusal. Uh, we see this in the whole try before you buy concept, right? I'm sure you've heard of it before. It's the argument for why couples should live together before they get married. And the whole premise is this, right? The only way I know whether we are compatible for each other is if we live together as if we are married, and if it works out, then it's meant to be, right? 
Now, what's very interesting is that research into this area has consistently shown this to be false. What's more, it has shown that premarital cohabitation is actually associated with increased risk of divorce down the track. That's so interesting, isn't it? Premarital cohabitation not only doesn't get you what you want, okay? That is a better understanding of your partner's suitability. It doesn't even do that. What's worse, it gets you exactly what you don't want, a broken marriage. Why is that? Let me ask you a question. Where where does the whole try before you buy concept come from? It comes from the commercial world of shopping. It is to let consumers try products before making a purchase. So we say, let me see the goods. How good is the merchandise? Hey, listen, people are not products. We are not goods. We are not merchandises. We are image bearers of God. And so when we treat other people like goods, when we use each other as merchandise, let's not be surprised that we experience rejection and refusal like goods and merchandises. Let's not be surprised that today we find a ton of people in the use or return pile of relationships seeking healing and recovery. Verse 29 speaks of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. I honestly think that there are few things more wicked than seeing people as products. Because when we do, we feel like we can treat them any way we want. And what's crazy is that sometimes in our sin, we treat products better than we treat people. We love products more than we love people. Sin is catastrophic, not just at an individual level, but also at a societal and corporate level. It is catastrophic because it has costs and consequences. Verse 27 speaks of due penalty for their error. You can underline that with me, right? But come to point three, because one of the costs of sin in a painful way, listen very closely, one of the costs of sin is receiving what you want. You see, remember the context of our passage is God's punishment and God's judgment. That's last week's sermon. Catch up online if you wish, right? But this week's sermon is looking at what judgment looks like. And so verses 24 to 25 speaks of God giving us over. Underline that in your Bibles, right? Giving us over to the sinful desires of our hearts. Do you notice something? God's wrath and punishment is expressed in Him giving us what we want. We must not think that God judges and punishes us by not giving us what we want. It is not punishment by deprivation. It is punishment by permission. It's basically this. Our sinful hearts want things that ruin us. It wants things that destroy us. It wants things that disappoints us. Yet God in His kindness guards us from that. He uses various means like the law that He gave in Holy Scripture to protect us. He gave us His Word and His Holy Spirit to direct us. But if we continue in the hardness of our hearts, then God says, okay, if that's what you want, then you can have it. God's judgment is allowing us to go down the path of disappointment, disillusionment, and destruction. But in the second cost is to realize what you have. 
Because here's the thing, as I speak of the catastrophe of sin, some of you in this room will think, Mr. Preacher, I know exactly what you're talking about. Because you have been on the receiving end of all of this. You have known deception, distance, instability, insecurity, rejection, and refusal. And you've realized, oh no, this is not what I was after. This is not what I wanted. This is not what I expect. You've realized, which is why the third cost is regretting what you get. I'm not sure if you realize, but, but regret is an extremely powerful emotion. Regret is wishing things would be different, right? And regret is amplified by a sense of loss, loss of opportunity, loss of relationships, loss of integrity. And then regret is amplified by truth. Knowing what was right back then, but doing the opposite. Only to be proven that you were really wrong in the end. And regret can be crippling. It can cause someone to just stop and ask, what do I do next? I feel stuck. And you know what? Some people in their stuckness don't know better but to continue. These are the consequences of sin. That's why the language of death in verse 32 is powerful, right? Because you see, all throughout Scripture, we read that death is the result of sin. That makes sense, right? Death is the ultimate form of distance and separation. Sin separates us from God, and death seals that fate, that separation from the presence and the goodness of God. There's a fitting punishment. But we also need to realize that this death is not just a physical or a spiritual death. It is not just that we will die. We, we, we know that there's that. But this death is a profoundly psychological category where we are lifeless even as we live. Some of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. To be stuck in the spiral of sin with no end in sight feels like death. Friends, what we need is redemption. What we need is new life. And that's where our passage is moving us towards. Because do you remember why these verses were written? It was written as an indictment, a judgment against the Gentiles. But this indictment was written to call them back to repentance based on the promises of the gospel. It's a warning. It is to say, this is the path that you are headed towards if you insist on your sin. But it's also saying, turn from it and you will find life. These passages are demonstrating the destructive nature of sin while also declaring that Jesus can save us from it. That you don't have to be stuck sinking in your sins. Let me draw a few implications for us, right? Firstly, if you've committed grievous sexual sin, then there is hope for recovery. I'll say that again. If you've committed grievous sexual sin, then there is hope for recovery. It could be specific homosexual sin, as our passage speaks of today, or it could be any other sort of sexual immorality, be it sex with someone who's not your spouse, or, or, or pornography, or anything like that. You see, church, the Bible speaks strongly about sexual sin. In fact, sexual sin is often isolated in its own category for a good reason, right? 
1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 says that every sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual sin is sin against one's own body. Clearly, there is something special and sacred about sex so that transgression in that area is not just hurtful to God and to others, but also to ourselves. And God, who loves us too much to let us sink in our sin, puts a large and clear warning sign urging us towards safety. Don't you see? The Bible is not anti-sex. It is profoundly pro-sex. That's why we speak about it so openly in your mind. I've heard that word too many times today, right? But it speaks openly about it within the right context. It speaks strongly that sex outside the right, the, the, sex outside the right boundaries are destructive and damaging. Now, now, if you are hearing this today and you are feeling a deep sense of burden, guilt, and shame, and maybe you are even hardening your heart right now. You are trying to block out the sound of my voice. I want you to know that though the Bible speaks strongly about sexual sin, it speaks even more strongly of God's saving grace. You hear that? That there is no sin that God will not forgive if we repent and we return. It's never too late. You can find healing. Romans 3.24 says there is redemption through Christ Jesus. This is a gift of grace offered to you. So hear the words of Romans 1 strongly. If you persist in sexual immorality, you are headed down the path of destruction. But hear Romans 3 just as strongly. The grace of God is greater still. If your heart is feeling heavy today, I'd love to speak with you after our service. I want you to join the many within our church who have experienced the healing and the liberty that comes from God through Jesus Christ. God loves you too much to let you sink in your sin. It is never too late to repent, to return, to find healing. Secondly, Given the severity of sexual sin specifically, but also sin generally, it's important to recognize that talking about this and dealing with this biblically is never too harsh. It is never too harsh because it is for our good. And so church, listen, our weekly confession of sin in our gathered worship is not too harsh. It's not a bad way to start our service. It's the right way because it causes us to see ourselves rightly. It's meant to stir our conscience before God to make us feel restless about sins that are undealt with. Accountability with Christian brothers and sisters we trust is not too harsh. It's meant to cause us to come face to face, not just with God and just with people with our sins. James 5 verse 16 says this, doesn't it? Confession and accountability with people we trust reminds us that there is no such thing as a private sin. Every sin is firstly against God, so there's a vertical dimension, but it also impacts people. There is a horizontal dimension. But you see, confession and accountability helps to bring these things to the light so that we may be healed. Likewise, church discipline is not too harsh. Withholding the Lord's Supper on people who continue in unrepentant sin, calling someone out appropriately, 
seems like harsh things, and no doubt it can feel emotionally harsh, but church, don't you see, these are really good practices to help us to tangibly remember that we have strayed, and God uses all of these things to draw us back by His grace. Can you imagine being in a church where you are sinning, the church and her leaders know about it, and then they do nothing? As if none of it matters. You would think that this church is okay with sin. Church, that church hates you. Because that church is happy for you to sink further in your sin. In contrast, imagine being in a church that deals with sin both seriously and graciously. Unafraid to call it out, but also unashamed in restoring you by the grace of the gospel. Chances are, you'd be more courageous in being open about it and being drawn back to God. Don't you see, our passage shows us that God allowing us to do or have what we want is a terrifying place to be in, where God leaves us to our own devices. Remember, God's punishment is not giving us what we don't want, it's giving us what we want, and God loves us too much to let us sink in our sin. So to deal with sin is never too harsh. And so church... We must never be too proud to admit sin's grip over our lives. Never too proud. We've been confronted with some serious truth today, haven't we? That any sort of sexual activity outside of a marital relationship between a man and a woman is immorality, will lead us down the path of destruction. Or that any of the sins in your outlines, be it wickedness, evil, slandering, and the like, these lead us down the path of destruction. But we turn to them because there's a charm. They promise something, but they never deliver. The only thing they deliver is catastrophe. So can I give you just a few points to ponder as we finish up today? Number one, which of the three charms... Do you think are the roots of the sins you struggle with the most? Which of the three charms do you think are the roots of the sins you struggle with the most? Maybe you have never thought about sin in this way. Maybe you've always thought, oh, gee, I have a lying issue. Now, now, now that may be true, but that sin is a symptom of a deeper longing. Do you lie? Do you manipulate for love, approval, acceptance, security? You see, the point of pain is rarely the point of the problem. And so very honestly, consider the sins you struggle with the most and ask yourself, which of these three charms am I actually after? Again, two people can commit the same sin for vastly different reasons. So the way we apply the gospel to them is very different. You know your heart. God knows your heart. Go to him in prayer and ask that he will reveal this to you. Or if you have someone you trust, they could be someone who guides you in this conversation. Which are the three charms? Next. Why do you think your heart is inclined towards those charms? That's a hard question, isn't it? The question of why. But we all know that answering a question like this is hard. But once we do, a lot of things begin to come in place. Is it because you were deprived of love as a child? Is it because you were in a relationship that had extremely little security? Is it because you never had approval that your heart longed for? Listen, there is a reason these charms have an appeal. 
there's a reason these charms grip your heart in a way that doesn't grip the person sitting next to you. Why? That may be a helpful question to think about and ask. Because then you are prepared to answer this question. Number three, what aspects of the gospel are you encouraged to keep holding on to as personal promises? Now, this is extremely hard. I do not doubt that at all. And there is a chance that you will spend the rest of your life trying to answer this. The purpose of giving you this point to ponder is to recalibrate your thinking and your understanding to see, listen closely, that Jesus and the gospel is your hope. What I mean is this. And let me use um, homosexuality as an example since it's in our text, right? It's very common for us to think that when it comes to same-sex relationships, what we fundamentally need to change is behavior. And so Christians in the past have, have looked at homosexual desires and thought, okay, the Bible is against this. So what we need to make them is heterosexuals. It seems to be the logical conclusion, right? Homosexuality is wrong, so what's the alternative? Heterosexuality. And the church in its mistakes have made extreme and damaging lengths to change someone. A lot of it is well intended, but it has misdiagnosed the problem. Don't you see? The Bible addresses all of this from the level of the heart. A person struggling with homosexuality is struggling with holiness. And so their ultimate hope is not becoming straight, is not becoming heterosexual, getting married and having kids. That's not the answer. The answer to homosexuality is, het- is, is holy sexuality. Those heterosexuals who are struggling with sexual sin, the answer for them is not just to stop doing that. The answer is holiness. That's the hope for all of us. That Jesus is our hope, that the gospel is our joy. So I am not asking you to go away and ask the question, how can I change my sexual preferences? I'm not asking you to do that. I'm not asking you to go away thinking, how can I stop being envious, deceitful, and malicious? I'm asking you, why are you drawn to those things? Because here is the good news. Whatever the reason, Jesus is better. Don't you see? He's forgiven us through the cross. He's given you new life through his resurrection. God loves us too much to let us sink in our sin. He's given us all that we could ever want and need in Jesus. But we all need different aspects of the gospel applied to us. Some of us in this room need to make personal the fact that God loves us. We have never been loved with an unconditional love, love so dearly. Until we see the infinite creator stooping down to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. That's love, that's approval, that's safety, that's security. Some of us need to make personal the fact that God will never forsake us. That God approves of us, that God provides for us, that God chose us, that God gives meaning to us. I could keep going, but do you see how different gospel truths can be applied differently to different people? What? Gospel truths, what gospel realities do you meet to make as your own personal promises? And lastly, and again, this could take a very long time to answer, but the question is this, how could this possibly change your life? Now, you may not know this until a lot later, 
But church, the reason why I'm asking you this question is because I want you to see that hope for change, hope for a brighter future is possible. Because here's the thing, a lot of people say a person cannot change their sexuality, a person cannot change their sexual appetites is impossible. Now, I'm not going to go into the physiology and the psychology of that argument. Come and talk to me after if you want, right? But I'll tell you what. We worship a God who created the world through His spoken word. A God who stooped down from heaven to make us His own. A God who has conquered sin and death. He is the God of the impossible. Nothing is impossible for Him. So again, I'm not saying that those struggling with homosexuality will become heterosexual tomorrow if they just prayed a special prayer. You may struggle with it for the rest of your life, just as some people struggle with other sins for the rest of their life. But the hope is that you can live in holiness and in great joy. You can live according to God's plans and purposes. You don't have to live in sin. He's made it possible for you today, don't you see? And I think this word of hope is something that our hearts so desperately long for because so many in this room feel so stuck and you feel like you're just in the darkness and there's no way out and there's so much shame behind you and so much darkness ahead of you. I want you to see that the gospel frees us from our past and brightens up our future. Church, I want you to see that because this year is not a sex issue but a sin issue, there is forgiveness. There is reconciliation, there is hope, there is restoration, and that is held out for you today. And so church, if you are struggling with this, I would love nothing more than to spend some time with you, praying for you and walking with you. You don't have to do this alone. Speak to someone you trust. And and, uh, can I assure you of something? If you come and speak with me, there is every chance that you think you will surprise and shock me, but you won't. You won't. You will be tempted to think that the church is a bunch of well-put-together people who've got it all figured out. That is foolish and rubbish. We are sinners in need of a Savior. Do not go to church thinking that they're all saints. It's like going to a clinic and expecting everyone to be healthy. It's like going to a soup kitchen expecting people to be full. You don't do that. People go to a clinic because they're sick. They go to a soup kitchen because they're hungry. People come to church because they need salvation and redemption. Jesus says, come today and you can find hope. You can find restoration. You can find renewal. You can find second chances. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word of both judgment and grace to us today we thank you dear lord that you know our hearts and you love us even though you know the depths of our depravity and our fallenness you never give up on us and you give us words of warning to draw us back to you and so our lord and god we thank you for a positive gospel vision of life and and sex and and living And we ask, dear Lord, that we would all together repent of the ways that we have strayed and continue to cling on to the hope of the gospel. We thank you, dear Lord, that you never discard people out of your kingdom. You welcome those who turn to trust in you. And so it's to you that we continue to commit ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.